0: And I'd kept one of them in the car and the other one came out and said, oh, somebody's robbed them of the money and different things, you know. And at that point, there was this kind of aggression and violence and I kind of decided to drive the other guy away and, and saying, right, you better get my money, you better get my money. So, so at that point, we kind of basically said, the guy that was in the car, we are take him away, unless you get my money, you know. At that point, I remember when we'd kind of taking the other guy away, and they, he had pulled the knife out and said, you better stop the car and let me out, you know, because they had obviously thought that we were going to take them away.
1: What it sounds like is you're threatening the guy in the car's life. Get this is finding founders I'm Samuel Donner and you're about to listen to part 1 of our drug dealer series a compilation of stories about a different kind of entrepreneur one who demonstrates similar traits to many of our previous founders but whose attributes evolved under entirely different circumstances today's episode is about Ryan Longmuir who was dealing drugs amidst the rising rave scene in Glasgow Scotland this is was in the 90s. And Glasgow still claims one of Scotland's highest rates for drug-related deaths. But drug dealing and addiction is only one small sliver of Ryan's story. Now, decades later, he owns a multi-million dollar catering company, one that seeks to uplift the individuals and communities who are struggling in ways that he once was. Ryan's life has been defined by risk, renewal, and redemption. Welcome to his story. One, the highlands of the lowlands.
0: I was born in a town called Kirkentillet, which is really just kind of an outskirt of um, the biggest city in Scotland, which is Glasgow. My father was a fireman and my mother was a sales manager. Um, I've got two brothers, one older and one younger. Growing up, always kind of loved the outdoors, the wilderness, just kind of running about. So that was kind of childhoods. I was probably about 10 and I remember um, there was there was a kind of separation that my mum and dad just weren't getting on, they were kind of fighting and it just wasn't really working out and my mum had went away with, with another man and I just kind of remember moving to another house with my mum and then we also went away to, there was a, an island in Scotland called Rossi, I remember going there. You had to get a ferry to it and stuff for, for a while as well, you know, and it was just probably quite traumatic and as a child you don't really know what's happening but you just kind of know that things are changing but you can't really comprehend it or understand it you know and I think that was certainly the the start of a kind of what is life all about who am I really
1: experiencing your parents divorce is a seismic life shift Maybe less so when you're older, but certainly when you're a kid, even if you don't fully grasp it at the time. Sometimes there's an odd misplaced relief knowing there will be no more arguments late at night, but all you've ever known is your parents as a unit. And now that unit has split in two. Ryan's parents eventually got back together. So much of this family turmoil subsided. And in the wake of this event, Ryan would explore an important part of his identity.
0: You know, you look back on your life, you know, and I've always kind of been a bit of a hustler. I remember I had. Um, a paper round, um, and I used to do it for the local shop. I had like fifty papers. I remember getting them, and then I would round all the all the doors in my kind of neighbourhood and chapped the doors and said, "Look, would you like to get your papers delivered from me?" And I remember I really got like another hundred customers. But rather than buy the papers, or tell the shop I just stole the papers from the shop. There was always. This kind of thing in me, i just seen opportunities, you know, and unfortunately it was kind of how do you scheme and skive and try and get away with things, you know, and not really, really appreciative of the law or how that could affect other people around us, i.e. the shop owner and different things. At school, and it was just... There was nothing really exciting, you know, but actually this kind of new life, doing something that was kind of breaking the law and, you know, you could get away with it. And it it just, it just seemed an exciting life. You know, and I think that was part of the attraction.
1: The attraction Ryan felt towards novelty makes sense. We stick a bunch of super young, high energy people into small classrooms for six hours a day, five days a week stuck on immovable plastic chairs. Kids want to be doing things. And when they can't, I guess the next best thing is to catch the thrill of social rebellion. Some of this thrill was sparked by a constant companion of Ryan's youth, his brother.
0: People that I grew up with, you know, as I started to get a bit older in 13, 14, then there was people smoking cannabis and different things, you know, and I've always been had that curious kind of thing in me you know I always wanted to try new things and I suppose that I'd seen it with my brother but you know it was never him like oh we take drugs come and take drugs with us it was just kind of there and you seen it and then you were kind of on the edges you know and, and then the people I was hanging about started to do that as well and it just kind of how my life went at that point. He's starting to get involved with other drugs, you know, whether it be speed and ecstasy and different drugs, you know, more just kind of an experiment type thing.
1: When he talks about these initial rebellions, smoking weed, stealing newspapers, they come across like little tests of the system. Like he's saying, how far can I go? How far can I push this boundary before something actually happens? But it's a battle between you and the system. Either you bend to it it bends to you. And when neither side is winning, where do you go from there?
0: I'd been in trouble at school and been suspended and different things, you know. I suppose there was just, there was a group of people that were just kind of a bit out of control and I had kind of fallen in with that crowd. I was disruptive so much so that basically I was removed from the class and had to sit like in the kind of teacher's room for like half the year. They just wouldn't let me back into the class. I think there was just general No, really thinking that I could get anything out of school and probably thinking I knew better you know I think at the age of 15 thinking what's the point of this that I was just going to leave school and get a job and make money. At that point, I was still living with my parents, you know, my brother, he had worked um, at a job in McDonald's, so I was able to get a job working at McDonald's, taking drugs, you know, and kind of selling drugs. For me, it always been good at kind of meeting people and networking, and, and I started to realise that I could buy a bigger amount of drugs and sell part and keep enough for myself. And at that point, there was a, the wave culture at, at, in Scotland, you know, when there was kind of a whole scene of that, you know, and, and I got involved with that kind of all night waves, you know, taking ecstasy and you know, speed and things like that, you know, and it was just a whole part culture type thing that, that I just get caught up in, you know, and kind of love. Certainly at the start when you take drugs, you know, it's exciting, It's it takes you out of yourself. And I suppose, for me, an average kind of weekend when it was at its height, you know, that you would be going out to the dancing and you would be taking, you know, four or five ecstasy tablets and speed. And then kind of after that, you would be taking some Valium, you know, just to kind of come down. And that would always be with alcohol mixed in and constantly just smoking cannabis, you know, just like I would smoke 15 joints every single day, you know, in my life type thing, you know. And I, and I think for me, there was this life of excitement and doing kind of crazy stuff.
1: This breakaway from structural constraints and a move towards excitement was not unique to Ryan. The 90s fostered a new era for music, and Rave was a fresh kind of counterculture, pushing its way into the scene where punk and rock had begun to carve out spaces for rebellion. It took shape in the wake of a decade-long Thatcher era, a pushback against political conservatism taking rise during the final stretch of the Cold War. But raves were their own separate world of drugs, light and sound. Outside of them sat the alternate reality, the one beyond the high. But that reality was becoming increasingly unstable. And soon, Ryan would break through the guardrails.
0: Obviously, I was kind of taking drugs and getting into trouble and different stuff, you know. And I remember having an argument with my parents in the house, and I think I was 17 at that point. They weren't happy with my behaviour and causing all the trouble and just different stuff. And I just says, I'm going out, you know, and I remember just at that point, that was a kind of catalyst. I moved out of the house, you know, and I went and stayed with somebody through a Mary Hill in Glasgow. At that moment, you know, my life really kind of spiralled out of control because there was no day that was keeping an eye on me, there was no kind of loving place there and I was free to kind of run wild and do whatever I wanted, you know, and I suppose at that point that's really when kind of my drug taking and kind of starting to sell drugs really started to increase.
1: So how did it begin to increase? How did you start to acquire you know, significant amounts, not only for yourself, but, but to sell?
0: In Glasgow, where I was staying was a place that was quite notorious for people that were involved in criminality and selling drugs. So at that point, I was able to really source cannabis and started to cut that up and keep some for myself. It's always that supply and demand issue, you know, there was a demand from friends and people I knew. Then it it was a kind of natural progression for me, you know, and I think it just kind of snowballed. I used to go to different festivals, take drugs and, and sell them at the festivals and then started to be selling drugs to drug dealers. The influence and the excitement of it For me, there was certainly something in me that flourished on that, get this much and sell that much. The the people I was starting to buy off now were big-time drug dealers, you know, they the fancy cars, fancy watches, fancy clothes, you know. So there was something in me that I was looking up to these kind of people thinking I want to be like them.
1: The person that I I feel like I'm talking to now is someone that's like very calm and, and, and you seem kind but this lifestyle is dragging you away from maybe the core of who you wanted to be. Were you were you scared of yourself and like what you might do? Yeah. So
0: so I remember. Um... One time that we went down to where we usually kind of buy drugs, it was um, somebody that I had a connection with and he didn't have any. And there was a couple of other guys that I knew loosely. They said, look, we know somebody that we can get drugs for you. I kind of took them into my car and they, they took me and they said right let's go here drive to this place and we'll go and get you there. so they're saying look we need the money you know so I had given given them the money they went in and I'd kept one of them in the car and the other one came out and said oh somebody's robbed them of the money and different things you know and at that point there was this kind of aggression and violence and i would kind of decided to drive the other guy away and, and saying right you better get my money you better get my money so, so at that point, we kind of basically said, "The guy that was in the car, we're taking him away, unless you get my money." You know, at that point. I remember, when we kind of taking the other guy away, and he he had pulled a knife out and says, "You better stop." They can't let me out, you know, because they had obviously thought that we were going to take them away.
1: What it sounds like is this guy is uh, maybe he lost some of the money, or maybe he's trying to rip you off, and he comes back. And you say, Where's the money? It's like, I don't have it. And then you're threatening him and possibly the guy in the car's life.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't see that. I was going to kill them there was just this I suppose you're faced with this situation that I've lost this money you know and, and at that point you're thinking I've lost the money I don't have drugs I don't have the money obviously I'd seen a bit of sense and thought you know what I just need to accept that I've been ripped off here and, and lost money you know and, and obviously at that point I realised that how futile and dangerous and nothing was secure really I suppose was probably the thought that went through my life.
1: So how do you start to progress? Because this time you're looking up to these big time drug dealers and wanting to be like them. So how close do you get and how do you get there?
0: So I think for me, particularly and twenty, I started to be more influential that I was then buying drugs that I was then selling to other people that sold them, up to like two kilos at a time, you know, and like 500 ecstasy tablets. and So it was larger amounts that I was buying and then kind of selling them on to people that would then cut them up and sell it to smaller individual people type thing, you know. So at that point, things probably shifted a bit in my life and I realised that this kind of money, it's not like if you don't pay the money or somebody doesn't give you the money, you can't go to the drug dealers and say, I'm really sorry, I've not got the money. Can I set up a payment plan or whatever? You know, it was probably people that you're dealing with that what I would say were organised crime, there was violence, there was people going to jail. And I remember a time that I was selling to a guy that I gave him the drugs and then he was to sell them and then give me the money, you know, and he, he, he never gave me the money, you know, and, and obviously we had to go after him because it was, it was a large amount of money. We drove by in the car and I remember seeing him, you know, and we chased him and, and it was like, at that point, i seen somebody running for his life. I suppose at that point I really thought can you know, I either need to become a big time kind of drug dealer gangster type guy which is all involved in violence or I need to do something else in my life I just didn't know what that something else was and I think probably at that point that was probably the catalyst for change for my life you know and I was probably I was 20 years old and I think. You probably start to point the finger and blame, you know, the place that you're living and blame everybody else without really realising that three fingers are pointing back to yourself and your kind of thumb's pointing to God, you know, and at that point, that was probably when I kind of came up that I thought, I need to change something in my life here, I kind of go on like this, I don't want to be like this, you know, And and that was probably the start of something i didn't know what i wanted or what it was going to look like but i just knew something had to change and that's not what i wanted to be like
1: this lifestyle one which held such allure and novelty a few years before had consumed him and only a handful of moments would provide him with the brief lucidity necessary to question his choices One of the more challenging aspects of addiction is your lack of control over it, and it's total control over you. It's not to say that you can't reclaim that control. We may not have been telling the story if it were otherwise, but at least for a time, it becomes fused with who you are. It digs talons into how you see things, how you see others, and how you see yourself. He was saturated in the chaos of this ever-churning, insecure world. And as Ryan watched that man run for his life, he was running from his. In 2000, you you try to leave this lifestyle. What makes you want to leave?
0: I think I just wanted something different. Didn't really know what it was. I probably didn't even know that I wanted to leave the lifestyle. I just was kind of, I wasn't happy. I suppose that's probably the best way of doing it. I just kind of wanted to escape. And for me, I thought, let's go to New Zealand, the furthest place away from Scotland, sun, sea, sand, beautiful woman, start a kind of new life, you know? And I think, for me, I thought if I got off the hard drugs and can I do this, have a fresh party, new people, you know, everything will be great and brilliant.
1: My question is like, why? ship the ecstasy pills over to New Zealand if you're trying to get away from this lifestyle?
0: I I suppose I just wanted something different, you know. I didn't really realise at the time that drugs were causing a lot of problems, you know. I thought, it's okay taking a few ecstasies. I was probably in New Zealand about five days or something, you know. So I'd kind of been in New Zealand, you know, and um, obviously before I left, I'd kind of posted to the drugs to where I was going to be staying in New Zealand. Um, And I'd been there kind of five days. And I remember... They, they basically kind of drug squads, you know there was about 20 of them came and raided this house that i was kind of staying with customs officers and, and drug kind of officers you know and they just kind of burst into the house you know they of arrest you i suppose at that point it's like you realise, oh no, something's going down here. The reality of that situation really hit home. And I'm thinking, oh no, this isn't is a good situation here. At that point, I was kind of taken away in the police car, down to the police station, you know, and all these different thoughts are running through your mind and the reality of how this is going to go, how that's going to be perceived by your parents back home and different stuff, you know, and I suppose... That was probably the first time in my life that I thought, this is pretty bad, you know, and this is actually the reality of my decisions up to this point have really imploded and I'm faced with, was kind of thinking, wow, this this is a bad situation here. I don't know up to that point i would always lie and cheat and scheme and just do anything to try and wriggle my way out of situations but for the first time in my life i just felt like i'm just going to be honest here and just tell it as it is you know and i suppose when the guy asked me whose are the drugs of the yours and i just was like yeah they're mine i posted them they're for my use and different stuff you know and i suppose that was the kind of catalyst when I went to court, I got out in bail. At that point, they took my passport off me and I had to go back to the police station kind of twice a week and stuff.
1: Did you turn to someone or something to help in this time?
0: So at that point, I, I remember I'd been going with a girl back home and for, for a couple of years. The relationship was pretty toxic. You know, i cheated in her, she cheated in me, but she was from a good family. You know, our parents were teachers, so I'd kind of phoned her. Say, look, this is pretty bad. I've been caught with drugs, it's not looking good and stuff. And I remember at that point, she said to me, You should pray. See, I don't know what prayer's going to do. I was expecting to get a couple of years in prison, you know, on previous convictions with drugs and stuff back in the UK and stuff. So that was the reality of my life. And I remember just kind of thinking, pondering about all that. And that kind of thing that this girl had said to me was kind of ringing probably in my soul and not really realising it. And I remember getting down at the side of my bed and kneeling and I prayed a prayer. I said, I don't believe there is a God, but if you're real, show me that you're real. My life's a mess. Then I was driving back to where I was staying on the Sunday morning after partying all night and it was about 10 o'clock in the morning. I remember it was lashing a rage. So I see these two beautiful girls hitchhiking. I thought, wow, you don't get that in Glasgow on a Sunday morning, do you know what I mean? So I stopped and I see these two girls in the car. So I'm like, do you want a beer? just want to join the lap? No, we don't take drugs. Says, where are you going? Where can I take you to the lap? We're going to church. They're saying, do you want to come? And I'm like, F off. That's for fruitcakes. Why, why would I want to go to church? So I remember driving and, and we kind of arrive at this church. So I kind of walk in, it was like a Catholic chapel, you know, and it was people with woolly jumpers and kind of pews. There was loads of young people, there was a band in stage, you know, and I was thinking, this is kind of crazy, what is all this about? You know, and I remember that there was a woman there who'd been thanking everybody for their love and support, and she just lost like a kind of five-day-old baby. But it pickled my head, and I'm thinking, if God's a God of love. Why does bad things happen to good people, do you know? And she was thanking everybody for their love and support and understand now that God's a God of all comfort. She would the hope that she would see her kid in heaven again. But it kind of made me realise how fortunate I was to be in my situation and not this woman. So kind of the girl said, look, we're going for lunch. You want to come with us after the church service. So we're driving in the car and stuff. And we get to this kind of car park. So we're going to go in and buy some food for lunch and stuff for the supermarket. And i told them by this point, kind of getting caught, important drugs was involved with drugs, kind of my life was out of control. And they're saying, look, God loves you, he's got a plan for your life, he wants to help you, do you want to pray with us? And I'm saying, sure. So we start, we're saying, look, we're going to say this prayer, can you repeat it after us? So we started to say this prayer and they're saying, God, I thank you that you love Ryan, I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross. God, I ask you to come into my heart to be my Lord and Saviour, thank you that you rose for the dead. And I'll be honest with you, halfway through that, I'm thinking that's a lot of rubbish, I don't believe that. But something supernatural happened that day and for the first time in my life, it was like this veil had been lifted off my eyes. I was just weeping uncontrollably and the more I tried to stop it, the more I was just weeping and weeping and weeping. And that night, I knew that when I died, I was going to be the God in heaven, you know, and that has been the foundation in my life since that moment, you know, and that was that was the, the catalyst for change that allowed me to have a whole different life, you know, and at that point, at the end of that, I made a decision that I wanted my life to count, and I wanted to make a difference with my life and do something positive, and I've never, ever took drugs since, you know, and that's just been a total miracle and something supernatural happened in my life.
1: There's a certain gravity to this part of Ryan's story. At that moment, sitting in the back of the room, the reckless abandon that had formed his life in Scotland exerted a pressure that his body could no longer hold. Years of being only halfway committed to life, drifting between groggy mornings and the stale high of another familiar drug had now surfaced, pushing up through Ryan's exhausted shell into the space of vulnerability where he now found himself. The freedom he sought through ecstasy could never be obtained by it, and the drugs acted as the very restraints that he had been so eager to escape. True freedom was here, tears moving down his cheeks in a complete embrace of God who loved him unconditionally. One who could carry the weight of this burden that Ryan was ready to release. Act two, a change in menu. From ecstasy to escargot. What was it like returning to Scotland?
0: The court case kept on getting delayed and delayed. And I remember my friends were saying, you need to get strong in different things. And I was growing in my faith and stuff. A new group of people, you know, and just was loving New Zealand. I was going surfing, you know, and just it was like the grass was greener, you know, going running down the beach. you know. I remember one time I was just running down the beach and there was these dolphins and all the waves, you know, and diving in and swimming with them. And it was just like this. Whole new life had been opened up that I'd never really experienced before. Remember, eventually I, my, my court case was called and I had to go to court, and it had been delayed and delayed and delayed because of writing social r- reports and different things. And it's funny, all the money I had kind of saved up for drug dealing, selling my car, and everything, I had to kind of give it to the lawyer that was kind of doing my case and stuff. One of the things that blew my mind was, up to that point, I'd been at court many times, you know, and you'd maybe have a friend with you, or your dad would come, or different things, but there was like 15, 20 people, proper people with proper jobs, took a day off their work to come and support me and encourage me. And I remember going into the dock, and I was standing at the dock, you know, and I was smiling, and I'm thinking, this judge is going to think I'm up to no good and I don't care. But for the first time in my life, I realised that freedom isn't about being in or out of jail or on or off drugs. Freedom's about being free. And even if he'd said, I'm giving you a life sentence, I knew I still had life because I was free. It was the first time ever in New Zealand's history there'd been a deferred sentence, 12 months suspended sentence, and for importation. Do you know, and I really believe that because I honoured God, that he honoured me, you know, and I only got community service and a deferred, suspended sentence. About a, a month later, they revoked my work visa and they basically said, right, we're basically sending you away from New Zealand. But anyway, I came back. One time I went and visited Friends I used to take drugs with maybe a year after I'd seen them or something like that, you know, 18 months. And I remember going into the the room. It was the same house with the same people taking the same drugs. And the only difference was that they were playing a PlayStation 2 instead of playing a PlayStation 1. And it kind of freaked my life. You know, I realised that these guys are only moving on in their life. You know, they're caught in this life they've never moved on, they've never developed, they've never changed, you know, and it was something that was so, so stark that I realised if I hadn't found God and made change in my life, I would still be in that situation, you know, and I, and I think God gave me situations like that that just can kind of allowed me to, to realise how fortunate I was that somehow I'd found this new life and realise that life without drugs was so much better and living for Jesus filled me with, with purpose and meaning. I had a different life in it. It was hard because I didn't know any Christians. I didn't even think there was any Christians in Scotland, you know. I thought everybody took drugs because that was my circle of people that I hung about with at that time. So all I knew at the time was prison So I remember phoning prison fellowship to say, look, is there any Christians in Scotland? And the guy says, I know there's a church in Cumbernault for you are, you know, and I remember kind of going and, going and then I ended up becoming part of that church and that was where I ended up meeting my wife you know and it it was a great journey you know.
1: Whether in Scotland or New Zealand the freedom that Ryan had found within himself was borderless. This is astonishing when you consider what research has shown about the impact an environment has on a recovering addict. A behavioral study funded by the U.S. government in 1971 found that only 5% of soldiers who had become addicted to heroin while in Vietnam relapsed when they returned home to an entirely different surrounding. In stark comparison, when heroin addicts receive treatment and return to the hometown they began in, a grim 90% of them will relapse. When an addict revisits all the people in places that had fostered their addiction in the first place, it is extremely difficult to stay clean. Listening to Ryan say he visited all of his same friends in the same place he used to do drugs was like listening to him say he had walked into a den of lions. With every temptation at just an arm's reach, Ryan remained certain that the new life he had discovered was far more promising. At that point,
0: the early 2000s in Scotland, the real heroin epidemic that was ravaging communities. What kind of happens was I got a job. I was working with homeless people for a charity. I suppose I had a heart that I wanted to help people that had got involved with drugs, because obviously I'd found freedom out of that and I wanted to help as the church we felt we needed to do something about that and i'd read a book called jackie pullinger chasing the dragon and that was a lady who went to the walled city in hong kong and it was rife with heroin abuse and stuff and she'd really done a work there and helped to get people off drugs many people found freedom and found this new life that book really inspired me and i thought if jackie pullinger can do that in hong kong we can do that in scotland We started a charity called Free For Life, which was like a daycare programme. So they'd been sending people away to rehabilitation centres, which was great and good. But when they were coming back into the community, they were relapsing and falling back and into drug addiction and stuff. So we really thought we needed to try and do something that worked with people in their community. So we started this programme. actually went and got a flat and we called it The Penthouse. It was probably the worst flat in the worst area. But it was really big, had lots of rooms. I just stayed there and we started to let people come in, anybody that wanted to get off drugs or wanted to help. We said, look, you can come and stay with us, we'll pray with you, we'll support you, we'll help you get off drugs. It was crazy, but it was the most exciting time ever. There was people finding hope and freedom. There was somebody that was really ravaged with heroin and for three days it was coke turkey and coming off it. And then he just kind of broke and had enough, you know, and he pulled a knife out on me. And he says, give me money, I need to go and get drugs. When I didn't have any money on me, he basically took me by knife point into my car and made me go to the bank. It was a hole in the wall and I remember driving there at that point, I only had like £15 left in the bank. This is the last money I've got and I need it for my sponsored child. He says, I don't care. I need drugs. You need to get me my money. Go and get me that £10. I remember saying, there's one condition that me giving you this money that you let me pray with you. We drove to this big kind of project type thing with a big tiger block and stuff and I gave him the money and... And I remember praying with him, do you know, and I'm saying, God, I pray that you would just help him somehow find freedom. This guy went away, took his drugs and stuff, but six weeks later, the guy totally turned his life around and was able to break free and had a success, you know. But somehow there was this... Just amazing life, you know, that somehow you were helping people that are still my friends 20 years on, you know, and I've got a wife and I've got a job and I've got a family. And I've really found purpose and life and freedom away from drugs. It was great. So we'd done that for quite a wee while. And then there was a thing came out called the Care Commission that came and shut us down through the council. And then the charity that I was working for ran out of money. So at that point, I was kind of unemployed and unemployable. I kind of made a decision that how can you help the poor if you're poor? And I I thought, I want to have money that I could help, you know. There was an opportunity came, the church would go to a kind of cafe running and they'd always kinda of run it in house but never really worked and stuff and they'd employ people and the kind of pastor guy said, Look, Ryan, why don't you run that cafe but do it as a business? We'll kinda of give you little rent at the start, build it up. So it was a kinda of win-win, sort of back to my wife and says, Look, this is the opportunity, what do you think? She's like, You're kinda of crazy, but that's why I love you and that's why I married you. I never really thought about business or thought I'm going to be a businessman or something. I think opportunities just arise in your life sometimes and you just need to really take them with two hands. I'll be honest with you, didn't have a clue, you know, but it was passionate. This kind of belief that I can do all things, nothing is impossible. And I thought, I'm going to start a business, you know, i be a millionaire in two years time. How difficult can this be?
1: Ryan might have underestimated the level of challenge he was about to face. But he definitely did not underestimate his ability to overcome it. The author he had mentioned, Jackie Pullinger, says that God wants us to have soft hearts and hard feet. The trouble with so many of us is that we have hard hearts and soft feet. With a heart as compassionate as Ryan's, his feet would endure anything and everything on his mission to help others. When a drug addict threatened to take his life and robbed every last dollar he had, Ryan continued to give, offering up a prayer for recovery. He was like a magician pulling an unending scarf from a hat. Where most people would have given up, he found the resources and kindness to serve those in need. When Ryan realized he needed to make money to help the poor, his criminal record and experience as a drug dealer didn't exactly make him the most employable candidate. So for his next trick, Ryan made a job appear out of thin air, becoming his own employer.
0: In Britain, we have a TV series called Dragon's Den.
1: These are the dragons. Five of Britain's wealthiest and most enterprising business leaders. They'll make or break the dreams of dozens of budding entrepreneurs.
0: So I'd kind of done that and I was was looking to raise a bit of money. It wasn't a lot. And they were asking me questions, you know, and I suppose I came across with passion and they're saying, what experience do you have? You know, and I remember at that point, I'm saying, oh, I used to sell drugs, you know, so... (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know who was crazy or me for thinking that that was a viable thing to say. And, And somehow... They, they actually believed in me, you know, and they gave me a 5,000 pound loan. So it was one of these kind of soft loans that if you never paid it back, they wouldn't take your house off, you know, this sort of stuff, you know? And it was like, this was the start of something, you know? So that was when I started the business. For me, it was like, I'm only going to do this because I thought, how can you help the poor if you're poor? you know? And I wanted to give back. You know, I wanted to give people an opportunity. you know? Because what we found, although I'd been working with the people and help get people off drugs, we were really struggling to get them back into community and find jobs and find purpose because obviously a lot of employers are only sympathetic to people that have had previous convictions or had a a troubled past and stuff you know and when, when i started the business you know i decided that i wanted to call it regis banquet You know, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, the first year was really, really tough. You know, I think we turned over 43,000 pounds, you know, which was probably 70,000 US dollars. You know, and I remember working like a dog and thinking, how am I working so hard, working all these hours and there's no money in the bank?
1: Did any part of you think, I don't know if I can do this anymore?
0: I suppose when you get into kind of year two and year three, that's when it really became quite tough. Although we were starting to win a few jobs and start to learn a wee bit, you still weren't really, I wasn't seeing the financial breakthrough. I remember at one point, probably about two and a half, three years into the business that we were doing a wedding for 200 people and it was actually for my wife's cousin. And we'd kind of planned this big job and it was bigger than we'd ever done and stuff like that. And I remember basically it turned into a bit of a problem. The power was tripping and things didn't go the way we'd planned, you know? And I remember kind of at the end of the night when it was all over and I was sitting on the stairs, you know, and I was just crying, thinking, I can't do this anymore. you know? And I was ready to just throw in the towel and give up. But I remember the next day I got up and that's what I always loved because there's always a new day. Do you know, what? it doesn't matter how bad yesterday was, tomorrow's a new day. And I remember getting up and making a decision to say that I'm going to move forward, you know, and, and, do you know, the very next day I actually was awarded young entrepreneur there by the Royal Bank of Scotland.
1: Ryan knows better than anyone how an act of kindness can create a 180 in someone's life. From the two hitchhiking Christian girls in New Zealand to the Dragon Den investors, Ryan encountered people who looked past the stigma of his criminal record and saw him as the intelligent human he was. However, most ex-convicts are not given the same compassion and encouragement. People with a criminal background have an unemployment rate of 27%. And if they do find employment, statistics show that their income will only ever amount to 40% less than a person without a criminal record. Unemployment and poverty are the greatest factors that drive ex-offenders to return to crime after their arrest. In the U.S., 77% of offenders will recidivate within just five years of being discharged. When you look at the limited job opportunities available and see the cap that society places over an ex-offender's career potential, it is not hard to understand the feelings of hopelessness that lead to recidivism. When you show someone that they have power to improve their circumstances, they can find the motivation to make drastic changes in their life. Today, Ryan gives people with criminal backgrounds jobs that they can thrive in. He reminds them that regardless of their societal status or past mistakes, the value and aptitude they were born with remains unchanged. So... Where is the business today? Where are you today? And what are the things, what are some of the things that you're most proud of?
0: As any man, the thing that I'm proud of most is having an amazing wife that loves me and having three children. You know, I've got a son, Ewan, and a daughter, Erin, and another son, Aaron as a business you know I think to to take it from humble beginnings you know and to to keep growing it you know and and this year has been a real tough year with Covid and stuff and our our industry and our sector has been hit you know and we're we're down 80% in sales you know and it's been a real challenge you know but kind of up to that you know we've grown the main business we just banquet into a £2 million turnover you know and we would 50 staff you know and it was just like and I'm so proud that that we see people develop you know, and, and I think that's the thing for, for for being in business. It's got to be more than just about the money. You know, I love making money, you know, because you can do stuff with it, you know, and you can make a difference. But actually, there's got to be something greater and more than that, you know. And, and I'm, I'm always encouraged with great leaders that have went before us, you know. And Richard Branson, he, he says, have fun and the money will follow, you know. And that's been what we've tried to do, do you know. And we've had so much fun.
1: Ryan's passion for helping people has fueled the resilience and grit he needed to create a profitable product. And the profitable product he created has allowed him to pursue his passion and further help the people around him. His resilient business attitude sort of reminds me of founder Kevin Gibbon, the tech entrepreneur who persevered through a loss of nearly $63 million, also a person we interviewed a couple weeks ago. To overcome a failure like this, Gibbon advised young business owners to keep their focus on the quality of their inputs rather than their outputs. If you want to see your hard work through, you have to find a sense of fulfillment that goes unaffected by the tides of monetary gains. Ryan does the work that he does because it has allowed him to create memories, a loving family, and change in people's lives. Whenever money or public praise may run dry, the well of these immaterial values never will you had a time machine that could take you back to maybe your 15, 16-year-old self, you could only spend 30 seconds with that previous version of yourself. What would you say with that 30 seconds?
0: Well, I would say to, to that younger person is, is to practice kindness in everything that you do and, and to... To help, because you can't help somebody else without helping yourself, you know, and that's certainly been my mantra in life. If I've served other people's visions and helped them in their lives, then that's allowed me to fulfil my dreams and my vision.
1: entrepreneurial spark common to Ryan and all our founders is a spirit of rebellion and independence, a commitment to living life on your own terms and defying what's been done before. I mean, look at the founder of Masterclass, David Rogier. There wasn't a rule he was willing to obey or a single authoritative figure he felt obligated to listen to. But if this buzzing, self-driven and defiant energy gets wired to the wrong circuit, it can be highly combustible. Like when our founder, Dylan Jacob, directed his intense curiosity and business aptitude towards drug dealing and violence. He got the wake-up call Ryan had at 20 at just 14. Ryan's story demystifies the false narratives of happiness that can lure bright kids like Dylan and Ryan onto paths of self-destruction. And the naivete of adolescence, it's not uncommon for go-getters to dive deep into the idealized lifestyle of money and partying. But as Ryan has taught us, what appears to be freedom, experimenting ceaselessly with drugs and breaking every rule in sight, actually becomes a barrier from living a fulfilling life. And what might appear to be power, wealth, and violence actually creates a deep insecurity within Ryan endured a painful and dark journey. However, today, his story and success stands as a testament to us all for where true happiness lies. If we are seeking freedom, we must find purpose. And if we are seeking power, we must use kindness. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia, with support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Kahn, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica,
0: and Maura Lynch.
1: Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Avneesh Sengupta, Prerika Chawla, Mitchell Lin, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gong, Zachary
0: Loudermook Batia,
1: Kylie McCrary, Lauren Pomerant. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lin. With support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Von, Lisa Lab, Ankita
0: Nambiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zhang, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Lingmu Hu, with support from Tiffany
1: Dang. Kayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Rualkava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Marovic. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at FindingFounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.